why am I complaining when there's nothing good on TV? <laughs> why am I complaining when I can't have my favorite beverage? This mm. is rubbish. You know, I'm focusing on things that don't matter mm. rather than appreciating what I have, particularly in our culture now where we're living longer and longer, but there's less and less meaning in people's lives. And that's not me saying it from the outside. It's what people report in you know, almost every psychological mm. or sociological survey, that lack of meaning is doing people's heads in. I'm here this morning with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good to hear. David, we were talking about Western and Eastern philosophy, and we ended up talking about Taoism and Stoics a little bit. And I was wondering what your thoughts are on suffering, because they're often really associated with bearing an unbearable load, the Stoics. Yeah, it's a, a huge part of their history, and it's an aspect that changes between Stoicism in Greece and Stoicism in Rome. In Greece, it was almost, I think, in response to the fact that Athens had been so successful that the Stoics you know, became you know, very aesthetic. Like there were famous Greek Stoics who would live in barrels on the edge of market squares and would just, you know, we in public if need be. <laughs> and we'd just walk around and, you know, pick food off someone's stall and go, well, I haven't got any money and I need to eat. <laughs> so, you know, they kind of gave Stoicism a strange name and that was almost a test to see what happens if a human brain says... I'm going to set myself a set of rules and live by them that are totally against social norms. So it was almost not only were they suffering because life was hard in the ancient world, they were choosing to make life even more difficult to see how much discipline a human brain can have. So part of this suffering thing is also questions of discipline and the ability to shape your own mind. By the time we get to the Roman Stoics, you know, life is still very hard in the ancient world, they've got a much more nuanced perspective of I'm going to enjoy days that are really good. But what they had noticed is people with good lives spend inordinate amounts of time worrying about what can go wrong. So the Stoics sort of concluded, well, children can still die from things we don't understand. Accidents happen. We have some medicine, but not enough to treat most diseases. There's still regular war. There's still regular violence in our world. Things can end terribly. Is it worth worrying about it? Or is it better to practice for the things you can practice for? You know, practice for running out of money. Practice for being out of favour with the emperor. And that thing of practising for bad days was the way the Stoics dealt with suffering. They said, look, so much suffering you can predict and you can practice how to cope with it. And if you practice how to cope with it, suddenly suffering is not so bad. Because you go, well, I know what to do. And the minute humans know what to do, it's amazing what we can cope with. So we've already got a transition there in that very early period between suffering as a way in a sense of learning discipline and then using discipline to prepare to cope with suffering. Mm. Is there truth in finding meaning in suffering? Because that's something that I think is brought up a little bit in some modern conversations, that if you can bear as much as is kind of bearable if you can take on as much as is bearable um, that you will find meaning in that load that that suffering if that's what it's it sort of comes up a, a few different ways in modern thought yes you know, so mm. if we start with you know friedrich nietzsche and we've we've talked about him a little bit before mm. that his yeah. idea of the Ubermensch. ubermensch yeah is you know to 
overcome your inadequate self and be a better you. And for him, discipline was the way to get there and suffering was the way to see how far you could actually go. Mm. So, you know, this is a guy that would go up in Switzerland and hike just above the tree line, just below the snow line for hours just to push, Mm. just to go body. You will get stronger. You will learn to cope with the cold. You will learn to cope with having a meal before we leave in the morning and not eating again until 12 hours later when we get back. Once again, the suffering was a way to prove how much discipline the human brain could generate Mm. and that with that discipline from the brain, you could get discipline over the body. Um, It's a bit of an aside, but it's a very interesting thing from having some friends that are ex-Navy SEALs that a very big part of basic training what's called BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition Seal, the initial selection process they go through, is to learn about pain Mm. and to learn some really important lessons about pain. And that is the first time you think you're tired or in pain is rubbish. It's your brain lying to you to save energy and to save the risk of damage. So if something genuinely bad happened, you'd still be okay. Some point after that first pain and tired message, comes the second pain and tired message. And that's the real one. That's the one that says you are now entering the period where you are running out of energy, ability to concentrate, and you are beginning to probably harm yourself. Mm. This is a very important point to get near the end of whatever it is you're doing. And then there is the third pain and tired message, which is the stop now or you are going to break yourself. And then a huge part of the initial selection period for seals is about learning to ignore the first one recognize the second one and get things finished before the third one so there they've you know successfully implemented now over more than 50 years how to take someone who doesn't understand these things and by the end of training to have them ignore the first one because it's irrelevant identify the second one you are getting close now and to recognize the third one that you know unless it's life or death you need to stop at the third one because you're going to hurt yourself. Is the focus on that much discipline and that much kind of suffering is possibly just the best word for it? Yeah. Is that does that is that a distraction method from thinking about meaning in any other kind of form? Or no, in suffering you determine what you're really capable of mm. physically and as a consequence intellectually. Because if you're just lifting heavy rocks and moving them five meters and putting them down, there's no reason for your brain to switch on. Mm. But in the, you know, the case of elite troops, they've got to work their body to the limits while also surviving in combat mm. and achieving operational goals. So the brain has to be able to work while the body's suffering and the brain has to be able to work without enough calories, you know, on the path to dehydration, without sleep. So part of it is getting to know how far you can push the brain with the body. So suffering as a tool of self-knowledge is incredibly powerful. You know, we have so many aesthetic religious traditions where people fast or they sit on a freezing cold hillside and meditate for 12 hours. Mm-hmm. It's always of suffering to see at what point the body and the brain get new insights about themselves. In a sense, it's about stripping away normal social behaviours of going, well, I like comfort and I like it being easy and I like just sitting around with my friends. Those things are not going to get the difficult jobs done. So suffering is a way to go, what can my body do? What can my brain do when it really is under pressure? Which means you learn you're capable of so much more normally. So suffering is not a state you always want to be in. 
It's a state that teaches you how to do more when things are good and to make you more confident like the Stoics in Rome learnt that on a bad day, because you've practised, you're going to be fine. So that seems to apply to you know, the operatives, I guess, or the people in field in the Defence Force. Yeah. So do they find the same kinds of meaning when you're, say, in intelligence or something like that, where most of your job is based around looking at data? or? Well, um, the interesting thing is you don't get to specialise in sitting at a desk <laughs> until you have passed to the point where you could function in the field. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So the point is that you know, the kind of crazy level of training of selection for the SEALs or selection for the SAS or 2 Commando or selection for you know, the Royal Marines in the UK to go from that to the Special Boat Service, those selections are to take it to a whole new level of suffering. But the other thing that suffering does at a basic level in the military is if you all suffer through training together, you all learn that you all got through it and you can trust everyone around you to keep performing on a very bad day. So you were saying, you know, there's nothing necessarily, there's no object, objective to picking up a rock and then moving it five metres and putting it down. So that's, I guess, somewhat like a metaphor for weightlifting, going to the gym, things like that. So yeah. is there a place, functional fitness, that some? it's definitely becoming a fad now where um, looking at things like CrossFit, where it's essentially fitness based on real world mm. activities. So does that provide the same level of discipline or do you need the, the, the danger of being in combat to get the most out of the, the discipline? Okay, let's think of all our listeners out there. Okay, listeners, be honest with us. Let yeah. us know. Uh, how many of you have a gym membership and go once a month? <laughs> Again, gyms get by because of all the people who don't turn up. Oh, yeah. Imagine if everyone with a membership turned up. Yeah. There'd be standing room only. Yeah. You know, my standard joke with gyms is they're nightclubs without alcohol. <laughs> so essentially the average gym is people in Lycra trying to look fabulous, trying not mm. to sweat any more than they have to because it will stop them looking good to whoever they want to attract. So, yeah, CrossFit is appealing because you are made to work fast enough and hard enough and do diverse things mm. that you have to switch on. And it's not a deep form of switching on. But in our society, there's not much deep switching on. And some switching on is better than no switching on. It's meditative though, right? Because you're almost focusing on one specific thing and you're not necessarily allowing your brain to go to other places, think about other things. Well, again, it should be meditative. More important than anything, it should be you should focus on how to get your body to do it better. Mm. But again, this is where you, know, you watch people work with your physical trainers. In the main, how much of what a physical trainer teaches a client does the client remember? about how to improve posture, how to use their body better. Terrible thing is we need to be functionally fit now because we sit on our bums all day. It's the modern world. <laughs> mm. But functional fitness is really interesting enough or important enough for people to really be able to commit. Look at all the people who start gym and then stop or go the once a month mm. or only do it because they've done the New Year's resolution, do it for a few months and then quit again. Mm. You know, this is part of the problem of doing things like individual fitness. And yet look at people who play team sport because they don't want to let their team down, they're more likely to keep turning up. And yet what we see in Australia is, and I think the numbers are very similar for sort of you know AFL, soccer, netball, at about 25 the drop-off rate is just cataclysmic. People stop playing en masse team sport because mm. life gets in the way. Mm. And yet if we wanted to really do something for people's physical well-being and their mental health, continuing to support ways within society where you can keep doing team sport 
you know, into your 30s, into your 40s would be excellent mm. because it's both physical and social. And you have to switch on because you're interacting with other people and other people do random things. Mm. So, you know, the benefit. Well, the Spartans worked this out. Yeah. yeah. Soldiers trained together. The civilian population danced and sang together. And what the Spartans found is that by getting the population to dance and sing together where you know, you're singing in unison and you're dancing in unison, the sense of I am a part of something greater than me. Mm. Now, the Spartans are a weird bunch of dudes. You know, they left children out to die who were disabled. Yeah. They you know, basically normalised pedophilia as part of their culture mm. because if you're sent off the barracks at nine and you have no sexual contact with anyone else, it's probably going to end up badly. <laughs> um, you know, and things went wrong. Their population wouldn't grow because the guys didn't like going home from barracks. Mm. They'd been normalised to life in barracks just with other males. It was all very strange. But the benefits of physical action in unison to build social cohesion were evident. And you know, that's part of what makes CrossFit work. You're doing diverse physical activity as part of a group. So you've got that strange combination of it's not quite in unison but almost, but it's also social but not quite, mm. which is why it's so successful. The individual who can go to the gym and do the hard workout on their own without someone to train with and just maintain that discipline six days a week is truly the rare beast. Mm. Yeah, for anyone out there who's interested, read Arnold Schwarzenegger's autobiography. Mm. Now, I know there's going to be sniggering out there in podcast listener land. It's actually a great book. You realise that this is a very smart guy who worked out what he had in his favour was the ability to be disciplined and a body that would respond well to being trained. Mm. And he just kept leveraging that. But you know, even he did better once he started training with an Italian guy who was nearly as switched on as him. Mm. And when you know, Arnie moved to America, his Italian training partner moved too. And his training partner was never as successful in competition as Arnie, never made the transition to acting, never made the transition to essentially being a real estate mogul by the time he was 30. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But this guy's discipline, the two of them together, could accomplish nearly anything. He was, a, was he lightweight? Am I making that up? Uh, I think the training partner was a much you know, smaller guy mm. and you know, in a much lighter body mm. weight category. Mm. Arnie had that rare thing from reading the book of both being tall and able to put on bulk, mm. you know, which is a hard thing. Most serious bodybuilders are fairly short. Mm. Again, for listeners, one of my weird former lives, you know, between about 18 and 23, uh, was working as a sports injury masseuse <laughs> and working a lot of gyms full of powerlifters and bodybuilders. They're pretty weird dudes and the girls are pretty strange too <laughs> because that much fixation on appearance, on non-useful muscle mm. is really odd. You know? Now, the very interesting people in that world normally have some sort of equivalent discipline for shaping their mind at the same time they're shaping their body. Those people were very interesting. The people who had the full-blown narcissistic fixation on shaping their body um, I used to refer to as lobsters. <laughs> yeah, well, look where a lobster's brain is. Where is it? Not in its head. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, a lobster's head is full of shit. Okay, lovely. That's good. That's why we don't eat it. <laughs> yeah, right, okay. But the rest of it tastes good. Yeah, well, that prime muscle. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the connection then between the meaning for people outside of the military? So let's say like Nietzsche 
who was managing to hike for 12 hours a day found the meaning in maybe those kinds of activities. So you're saying that it has to have a purpose or the, the discipline has to be transferable to another, another skill. That seems to be the case that historically multiple traditions have ended up in the same place mm. and that is using physical discipline mm. to get the brain to give up chattering about rubbish and either start focusing on doing the physical thing well or accept that you're in pain and stop focusing on the pain. Mm. So to learn acceptance of suffering, that it's far easier to learn acceptance of suffering through physical means first and then through you know psychological, intellectual means later. So it's why when philosophers sit in universities and you know ponder about deep meaning of the universe while sitting with a coffee and a donut, they'll create a lot of words. Mm but I'm really convinced by the meaning they create mm. because in it is a novel question but there's not anything that transforms the ability to deal with suffering and this is a hard thing for us to understand in the 21st century in a beautiful country mm. suffering was normal suffering was most of people's lives people expected their small children to die men expected their wife partner to die in childbirth mm. People died when their wisdom teeth came through. People died in hunting accidents where they impaled themselves on a, a stick, got an infection, and four weeks later died screaming. Mm. Suffering was normal. You know, the simple thing of, you know, beginning of agriculture, starting to grind grain to make flour, grinding it with stone and ending up with stone chips in all flour so that every time you ate something, you broke another bit of tooth off. Mm going through your 20s with abscesses under your teeth until you died in your early 30s. Mm. We've got to remember that until you know, the late 18th century, the average human age was 35. Wow, yeah. And life was horrible. Yeah. And it's so easy to forget that. And the minute life gets better, well, part of what you learn from suffering, part of what you learn from hardship, if we look historically at our species, if we've been the species we've been for around 100,000 years, 90,000 of that was hunter-gatherer, where the simple rule was, if you've got a full stomach and there's nothing you absolutely need to do, sit still, because you need those calories to last. Mm. Winter will be coming, there's no new calories. Mm. Dry season will be coming, there's no new calories. Mm. Dry season will be coming, you'll have to walk half the day to fill up your water skin. Mm. So built into us so deeply is when things are good, don't waste it. So now that we sit still all day and things are good, this means the need for functional exercise is huge. But it's really hard for us to get off our bums and do it. The other side of this, of course, is we've now created kind of an intellectual discipline. How many people actually do well at studying at school or uni? <laughs> actually love it because mm. it's antithetical to our evolutionary path. Mm. Yeah, for 90,000 years, you worked physically hard and then sat still once you had that awesome meal. But the idea of get up, easily get the meal, sit at the desk for 10 hours, you know, it, it's doing our bodies untold harm and it's turning our brains to mush mm. because our brains are no longer used to dealing with pain, dealing with tiredness, dealing with suffering. Mm. And if our brain's not used to it, our brain then can't easily train our body to do it. So if we want to leap forward to you know, probably the most important writer on, on suffering who puts all the pieces together, uh, the most important writer on it, I think, is is really Viktor Frankl, mm -hmm. who was a Jewish Viennese psychiatrist 
who survived three concentration camps. Wow. Uh, and Frankel was amazing in that you know, he'd had to train as a GP first and then as a psychiatrist. Mm. So he basically became you know, the equivalent of like the medical officer for the inmates in most of the camps he was in. Mm. And what he started to realise was when he looked at everyone in the morning, he could see who was likely to die. And it wasn't a question of how physically sick they were. It was a question of whether they still had a meaning that would get them through suffering. Mm. And he was making some sense about it. But there was a day where they were on a forced march from one place to another and he was very physically sick. He was very cold. It really was getting to his lowest point. Mm. And the thought entered his head, I'm just going to shake my friend's hands off where they're holding me up. I'm just going to walk over there between those two trees, lay my face down in the snow, and one of the German guards will come up and put his rifle butt through the back of my skull for me, and it will all be over. Mm. The suffering will end. Yeah. And then it dawned on him, oh, what happens if my wife is stronger than me and survives? Mm. What happens if she doesn't give in to the suffering? And that's when he basically learnt that it was that question about what meaning you have will determine how you deal with suffering and how you deal with suffering will then determine how you create meaning. Mm. So the two things are intrinsically interconnected. So it seems that finding meaning is actually a lot more obvious during the suffering. Yeah. Yeah. That's what pretty much most aesthetic cultures, most martial cultures and amazing people like Viktor Frankl have all found, Mm. that if you suffer and as a result become stronger, you suffer and as a result achieve great things, if you suffer but know it's not going to knock you down, Mm. that you will still do worthy things for yourself and others, you can survive nearly anything. So what would you recommend for our listeners to be doing? What's what's the most accessible type of suffering discipline act they can put themselves through? I mean, is it individual? Like, or should we just all be recommending they go to the gym? Look, functional fitness is a good start. Mm. But in the main, do it with groups because mm. the thing of being a part of a group is what makes humans happy. So yeah, do a class where if you slacken and wander off, the other 20 people can see you slacken and wandered off. Mm. It's a better way to finish. Yeah, functional fitness is a good place to start. There's a very good book by a philosopher called you know, William Irving. If you look up William Irving, you'll see there's a couple of books. One is about essentially all the lessons he learnt from the Roman Stoics. Mm. But he had been an ultra-successful American university professor who was becoming fat and lazy mm. and saw that his students didn't really have much meaning in their lives. He had very little meaning in his lives. He wasn't living any of the philosophies he was teaching Mm. and his students weren't living any of the philosophies he was teaching. Mm. So what he decided is, right, the most powerful ideas in Western thought are the Stoic ideas. I'm going to start practising difficult days. Mm. And it would be little things like on a cold day, not wearing a coat that was quite warm enough, not Mm. turning the heater on in the car. Um, In his early 50s, he went back to rowing and has now competed in the Masters Games multiple times. He went and started yoga to get a useful body back. Mm. You know, he would have one day a week of going, well, I'm going to survive on 500 calories. What would I do if suddenly there wasn't easy available food? Mm. He just started doing little things consistently that would make him realize, why am I complaining when there's nothing good on TV? <laughs> why am I complaining when I can't have my favorite beverage? This mm. is rubbish. You know, I'm focusing on things that don't matter. Mm. rather than appreciating what I have. And he found that by practicing 
those difficult things by starting to do the yoga and the rowing where it was about doing them in groups, working in unison. Mm. He was more connected to people. Little things didn't bug him. He became stronger. His brain worked more effectively because his brain was functioning in a better body. And that what he realised is, particularly in our culture now where we're living longer and longer, but there's less and less meaning in people's lives. And that's not me saying it from the outside. It's what people report in you know, almost every psychological mm. or sociological survey, that lack of meaning is doing people's heads in. And what he found was the fitter he got, the more he practised hardship, the more he got involved in things he did with groups, the more meaning that just snuck back into his life. Mm. It's not that he'd actually made deep decisions about, I am going to build more meaning. It was by knowing on a cold morning, well, I don't want to let my boat crew down. I'm going to go out and row in the rain. Mm. The next day it would be, well, okay, it's still early, but I want to see all my friends at yoga. The next day it would be, well, you know, today's the day I practice eating a bit less. You know, as much as I don't like it, it makes it easy to be fit. Mm. And that when he started telling his students about what he does, they started switching on in a way they never had when he was just waffling about ancient thought. When he actually started demonstrating what living ancient thought was like. Mm. You know, listeners, I'm going to have an ego moment here, so mm. forgive me my ego moment. I got a major teaching award yesterday. Congratulations. Thank you, Tim. See, Tim is one of the people that actually got the students motivated enough to vote. And the great thing with this award is it was actually one of the student-selected you know, awards. Now, I don't teach a mountain of students, which means proportionally a lot of my students from the time since I went back to teaching at Adelaide University voted. And I would hypothesise that part of the reason I have enough of an impact on you lot that you lot were willing to vote for me was because I don't tell you what to do, I show you what it looks like. Mm. So we can sit here and talk about functional fitness and at some point we'll do an entire podcast on Ashtanga Yoga, which is my favourite way of staying fit. Mm. I can tell you about you know, what Stoics do practising difficulty. I do it every day so that I can use the cane more effectively and be a more effective blind person. Mm. If I gave in to the fear of how hard it is to function in a sighted world, it'd all be over. But by practicing every day, making myself walk on the unfamiliar side of the street, making myself take the long way, making myself go, okay, I need to walk down that road because there are obstacles and it will be uncomfortable, but it will hone my cane skills. You can tell people about you know, Roman Stoicism or you can tell people about Viktor Frankl surviving concentration camps or you can just show people what it looks like. Mm. And nothing is more persuasive than seeing it being done and someone not giving you a hard time but you seeing the benefits of what they've done. Mm. And there's nothing more persuasive than an exemplar and what made the Stoics so dangerous in Rome and why the Christians destroyed them is because they were exemplars. You know, even the very rich Stoics still practised a day a week of hardship. The Roman Stoics were an interesting bunch, and it's something worth touching on because we'll get a question about it from a listener. You know, several of the very important Roman Stoics committed suicide. Mm. You know, when emperors were either going to misuse them or abuse them or manipulate them, mm. or in order to save their families and friends because they'd pissed off emperors or senators. <laughs> yeah. They had the discipline to go, I will live life with the meaning I want and I'm willing to suffer things where there is value in suffering. But if someone is going to destroy me so they can win, I'm not going to give them the satisfaction. Mm. 
So I'm not saying go out and become that hardcore stoic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, go the William Irving path mm-hmm. of just a little bit of hardship, a little bit of commitment to being more connected to the world and see what meaning grows. You know, there is no magic meaning tree that you can walk up to and pick a fruit mm. and suddenly have meaning. But you yourself are your own meaning tree. Mm. If you nurture yourself physically, you nurture yourself socially, you do what is necessary to recognize that suffering doesn't bug you. That not getting your favorite beverage doesn't bug you. That being hungry doesn't bug you. That being cold doesn't bug you. It's amazing how much more time you have to connect with people and see what's truly worthwhile. That sounds like an excellent note to ruminate on for the, for the listeners, I'm sure. No, don't ruminate, go for a walk. <laughs> Yeah, don't sit down, that's right. Yeah. Stand up, people. Uh, thank you very much for that, David. Thank you, Tim. Thank you.